Hello and welcome to Broad Appeal, the podcast that looks back at female-driven films from the not-so-distant past. I'm Brian. I'm Sean. How are you today, Sean? Super as always, Brian, because Sadiq Khan has just been elected to office of mayor in London. And of course, we're radicals, so we support him. Yeah. <laughs> well, Sean, there's also been some other exciting news about a particular selection that we just learned about just today. Jessica Lang and Susan Sarandon are going to be doing a TV limited series, aren't they? I mean, this is news for actress lovers around the world. So Ryan Murphy, who's this giant uh, actress-sucking machine. And also someone who's going to co-opt all of gay entertainment before he's done. Yeah, I've got, I got a problem with yeah. that. He, you know, I, you know, I feel great about Supreme Leaders. Um, he's going to do a, a selection of series based on famous arguments. Feuds. Yeah, feuds, if you will. And, and did he choose the Hatfields and the McCoys? No, he chose... He chose Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. And the instant, the instant, Sean, that you told me about the casting, I knew who was who, right? Do you yeah. think Do you think Jessica Lange is well-suited to play Joan Crawford? Yeah, she will be, because she can do the kind of, uh, the breathlessly helpless evil bitch. Tense mania. How do you feel about Susan Sarandon as Bet Davis? Betty Davis. Um, she's good. She's she's good. She gets similar eyes, you know, kind of like vacant, sunken, vacant eyes. <laughs> do you think she can capture the accent? Hey, babe, if I can do it, then I think a full-blown American woman can do it. You've never captured Betty Davis's accent. She I mean, may. we've had Betty Davis herself on the podcast oh, yes. a few episodes back. You you kept leaving the room. Oh, yes, I had, I, I had violent diarrhea. <laughs> anyway... So when it comes to two actresses facing off against each other, one of the films in which that happens is today's film, The Grifters, ah. directed by Stephen Frears from 1990. Do you know who the, who the casting of this film includes? Yes, it includes Angelica Houston, and I believe that I play the other actress. Yes. So ladies and gentlemen, you might be confused. You're saying to yourself, Sean... Sean is an actress in a film from 1990. Well, the thing is, ladies and gentlemen... This is one of the first things he ever told me, by the yeah. way. So when Sean and I first met, we were watching Postcards from the Edge, which... Is that Annette Bening's film debut? I think it is, yeah. Yeah. And no sooner did she saunter onto the screen than I said, My God, she looks exactly like you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you have to Google... First, you have to Google Sean, oh. if you don't know what he looks like, if you've only seen his voice seen his voice, heard his voice, but then you have to Google not just Annette Benning, but you have to Google specifically young Annette Benning. And in fact, I would argue that it's only in Postcards from the Edge and The Grifters that she looks like Sean, <laughs> because at some point, probably around Bugsy, she started looking more like a middle-aged grand dame. But what does that mean? It, it's been confirmed by objective sources, Sean, your facial physiognomy... It resembles the young Annette Bening. But what part, though? What, 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 what do I have to do? little baby cheeks. Am I, I smiling or I don't know what it is. You have an impish, an impish glee that, that, the, that the young, slutty Annette Benning also shares with you. Well, the slutty part, perhaps. <laughs> young and slutty, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> do you think that means you're going you're gonna to grow up to be a um, frigid real estate agent a la... American Beauty. I think time will show that I've already done that. <laughs> um, I do see myself with a Warren Beatty type person. Well, look at me. Look at me. An aging sugar daddy. Um, One so of those things is true. <laughs> Let's dance. We can do a little two-step. I'll go anywhere that you step to. Because now I'm following you. Sean, so today's film is The Grifters. Um... Can I just ask you, first of all, to define the term grifter? What does it mean? Well, if it's anything like the word grafter, which is which is a word my mother uses to describe listener Aileen Johnson, um, which means you'll work hard, you'll be a scrub woman until you make it to the top. But Ro grifter... No, there's a different swindling. vowel. This, that's right. But swindling. Swindling. Yeah. Not from Swindon, but swindling. Yes. Meaning what? So what? Through swindling them how? Grift. It's kind of like uh, through... through Manipulation, trickery. Exactly, con artists. Yes. Yeah. It's a sort of a subgenre of films, right? The con artist film. Can you think of any notable examples? The Lady Killers? Yes, I haven't seen it, have uh, you? No. 
Con artist film. Yeah, Heartbreakers. Okay. Jennifer Love Hewitt and uh, Sigourney. Our beloved Sigourney. Our beloved favorite Sigourney Weaver, yeah. I mean, when I think of con films... Um, con the... error. <laughs> that's about that's about the, a great grift in, in, in the air, isn't it? My, um... The the sort of archetypal con artist film is uh, that I think of, and a film that I really loved when I was a kid. Paper Moon. Yes, Paper Moon. Although um, only slightly more hard edged than Paper Moon is 1973's Best Picture winner, The Sting, with ah, um, yes. Paul Newman. Paul Newman. Wait, did Betty Davis come into the room? I, I, I don't. I need you hearing things. <laughs> that your brain is bleeding again. <laughs> Paul Newman and Robert Redford. I love that movie. The the fun of con artist movies is knowing that you can't trust anyone and hoping that the filmmakers and the screenwriter in particular sort of stay one step ahead of you, that you're completely surprised at sort of who's double-crossing whom, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. No, I actually, in retrospect, I think I'm a fan of the con artist's picture. I mean, in theory, a con artist's film can either be very funny, very dramatic... Right. And would you say that the con artist film is one of the more triath- oh, shit. theatrical uh, of the cinematic genre? It's it's like a high wire act where the, the filmmakers and the storytelling is meant to trick you and keep you surprised and not in a kind of M. Night Shyamalan way where there's some sort of supernatural, you know... Gimmick. Gimmick that's revealed. Um, okay, so in this film, though, because Angelica Houston and Annette Benning are the main characters... I would say that they are con artists. There, well, everyone, all the main characters are con artists. So the, Who's do you the know man? The, the male lead, do you know? It's John Cusack. It is John Cusack in, I think, one of his early dark roles. I mean, I guess he's he's gone on to play sort of dark and twisted characters, but certainly at the time that he was cast in this film, he was known mostly as a kind of teen heartthrob and kind of indie darling from things like Say Anything, you know? Yeah. But, um... Um, can I just say... Yeah. What happened to him? Well, he still acts in things. He was in, um, The Paperboy. Oh, yes. I think he was in The Butler. Also Lee Daniels. So who did he... Did he play Richard Nixon in that? Oh, you know what? I, I, I haven't seen The Butler. I haven't seen Neither it. have I. But that line from Oprah, it's like, Everything you are, and everything you become, becomes that butler. <laughs> Yeah, and then it's he, such a Lee Daniels. And he was in Chirac as well. He played a crusading um, Southside Chicago priest. Oh, in that case, I I like and respect him again. I mean, I love being John Malkovich. The thing I think that um, the Grifters has in my memory, this is a story in which sex and con artistry is mixed. So we have an interesting triangle between mother Angelica Houston, son. John Cusack and girlfriend Annette Benning. Oh, girlfriend! Yes, uh-huh. and they're all sort of conning each other. I have to say, I remember that I watched this movie. I'm sure it was rented from Video to Go, probably during my Olympian phase of 52 free movies. You're the Imperial phase. Yes, I watched it. I loved it. I enjoyed its circuitous labyrinthine plot twists. Okay, so and it, and it has some and it has some very dark sexualized elements to it, which I won't give away. But I don't really remember much of the plot. All I remember is that it's surprising. Yeah. The actual specifics of who's tricking whom and what it all means, I don't know. Can I ask you a few questions? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, this is a genuine question I've never thought about asking. Yeah. So you know like PG thirteen or NC seventeen, that kind of thing. So the ratings, the ratings, yeah, the ratings. Jack Valenti, yes, go yes. on. And um, so I know they apply for cinema, but when you rent like a DVD or a video, does it say R NC seventeen? Yeah, it does on the box. Yeah? yeah, yeah. All right. Why? I mean, I guess like when I go to um, the USA in June, I'll have a look at the DVDs. But we're, some... we're unlikely to rent any DVDs no, when we go if to we'd rent any. We'd look at them, maybe in a Target, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> yes yes w- was that a question that was of relevance to something yeah so what was the rating of this picture I don't know uh, I assume it was probably rated R I mean I don't think it has expli- it might have been PG-13 it doesn't have in my memory any explicit explicit sex scenes it might have some cursing um, but it definitely is not a film that presents 
human nature in the most positive light. Okay? Um, second thing. Yeah. Um, didn't this film get a lot of critical acclaim? It did. So do you know who directed this film? The director of Mary Riley, Stephen Frears. Yeah, okay. So what do, what do we know about Stephen Frears? What we know about Stephen Frears, or what I know about Stephen Frears, is that he's actually made a lot of very good, very different kinds of pictures. It's true. Um, the same man who directed, you know, the iconic gay romance, My Beautiful Andrette, also directed period drama, Dangerous Liaisons, also directed Philomena, I didn't abandon my child. <laughs> Their Oscar, Oscar winning actresses are just invading our studio. There's Dame Judy, come back, come back. Let's not forget the Queen as well. Of course. No, oh, and, and the great Florence Foster Jenkins, definitely in a cinema near you. <laughs> Coming up soon. So honestly, I mean, Stephen Pierce has had his share of fallow periods, but actually when you look at his filmography, he's done some really interesting pictures in a in a range of styles and genres, and he's actually had quite a lot of success at garnering particularly actresses uh, nominations and awards, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, though, do you think he's going through a bit of a bit of like a, a duff phase at the moment? Um, Philomena wasn't that long ago. No, Philomena was, was good. It was good. Yeah. Um, I've got a lot of respect for the film The Queen. I, I mean, listen, You love it. I've, I mean, in I've, a former life. In a former life, and probably in a future one when I'm really broke, I have been an English language teacher um, to like foreign learners. You know, it's good money, it's easy hours, you have no careers prospects, but hey, you get to finish at one o'clock sometimes. But toward the end of my career, when I thought to myself, I just can't do this anymore, I just decided to watch The Queen, like, at least twice a week, the last three <laughs> and, weeks. And somehow that was teaching them the use of adverbs or something? Uh, never did I ever claim that. What was it teaching them? It's about British culture. You, an Irishman, were inculcating British culture via watching The Queen. Like, we can do faulty towers lessons and stuff. It's that would have been good. Yeah, but that actually involves teaching, you know? No, but The Queen is actually a very interesting, dramaturgically wired picture. Stephen Frears is, I think, often a really great director of actors. Let's think of the actresses that he's got he got nominations for. Well um, let's, go, let's go let's go in descending order. Philomena, Dame Judy Dench. Yeah, the Queen, Helen Mirren. Who won? Yeah. Anyone else? Um uh, mm. Well, certainly I don't know if there's any in between Dangerous Liaisons and the Queen, but both Glenn Close and Michelle Pfeiffer were nominated for Dangerous Liaisons, and in this film, The Grifters, both Angelica and up-and-comer, up-and-coming slut, Annette Benning was also nominated. So, at the time, in 1990, when this film came out, Annette Benning was a virtual unknown, but Angelica Houston had had a long career. Well, Angelica Houston actually is a big part of my childhood because we had the Addams Family Values on video. And it's so funny. I think the Addams Family Values had a big effect on my life. But not the first. It is such a dark comedy and it relies so much more on the script than the first one does. The first one is quite grotesque and, you know... Okay, but can we focus on Angelica Houston in particular? And oh, you want me to focus, do you? I do, and on her screen persona. Was she the reason that you liked Adam's Family Values, or...? Actually, it was, it was Joan Cusack. Yeah. That's the reason why. Yeah. That's just another reason why my life has been affected by that film. I do see myself as a kind of a Debbie Jelinski character. Okay, but we're not talking about Adam's Family Values. <sighs> we're talking about Angelica Houston. You know, Bram Stoker's Dracula, that's a great film as well. Let's talk about She's that. not in that. <laughs> Um, I guess then I also saw her in The Witches. Um, I, I've still never seen the entirety of The Witches. I was extracted from the theatre in the middle of The Witches. My Aunt Jerry did not want to see it through to the end. She said, <laughs> she said, oh, Brian, no, I just can't watch this. I've worked with too many burn victims. Yeah. And then I also saw Angelica Houston in... You know what? That might actually be it. She doesn't do that many movies nowadays. She's more often relegated. I mean, I think the last big thing she ever did was that relatively ridiculous television series, Smash. Did you ever watch that? No. About a Broadway musical? I know I'm gay, but I do have some taste. <laughs> I mean, I know I've been afflicted by my own sexuality. You, I mean, you don't want to see Angelica Houston sipping a martini and singing in a gravelly voice? Can I just say, I don't want to be near or around Deborah Messing, ever. Okay, so Angelica Houston, she did smash, but... I love her in Manhattan Murder Mystery. True, although underutilized. She's also in Crimes and Misdemeanors, Woody mm -hmm. Allen. 
Uh, she's been in a few Wes Anderson. But oh yeah, she's so so good in the role of Tenenbaums. Give me some adjectives to describe Angelica Houston. Um, commanding. Yes. Sexy, but in a non-traditional way. Right. Would you call her sort of vampish almost? Yeah, I would call her. I mean, Alan's family definitely. She's yeah. vampish. And what is that particularity like? One thing I think as an Irishman that you're clearly neglecting is her her iconic role as Greta Conroy in her own father's film of the dead. Yeah, but I'm not even thinking about that. Agnes Brown. What's that? It's not a great film. It, it Maybe it is great. I don't know. She directed it. Her, can I just say something? Her, Angelica Houston's Irish accent is better than any well, other actress. Because she's Irish. No, she's not really. She, she her, is. No, John Houston was an Irish-American, but she grew up in Ireland. She grew up in Ireland. And I think... That something about her otherworldly beauty is this combination of, I think her mother is Mexican or, or well, Spanish. Well, she's not Irish, that's for sure. That's what gives Angelica Houston that kind of mysterious, unplaceable quality. Well, she's not a cutesy blonde, you know. No. At all. She's tall. She's kind of like Sigourney Weaver in some ways, but Sigourney Weaver is actually probably better looking. Do you like Angelica Houston? Very much so. She feels otherworldly, and I have to say... My memory is that in this film, The Grifters, she is she is commanding, she is scary, she is sexy. Um, this is not a comedy. No, 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 no. This it, is, it, it looks like it could be a comedy. This is a dark portrait of menacing emotions. You know, so 1990, in the Best Actress race... Oh, yes. Yeah. Angelica Houston was very much in the running for winning Best Actress. She, of course, had a supporting award for Pritzi's Honor, and she lost to... Kathy Bates. Kathy Bates, playing another menacing character, although in a very different register. I suspect that if it weren't for that iconic performance in Misery, Angelica Houston would be a two-time Academy Award winner for this film. And, of course, Annette Bening was, like, the young, sexy... Sexpot. Sexy sexpot. But she was she was soon to become a kind of Hollywood leading lady of a particular type within a few years, thanks to her union with, with Warren Beatty. It's so fortunate she had to lose to Hilary Swank twice. How do you think she feels? Annette Benning has had a better career than Hilary Swank. Hilary Swank has two Oscars. Annette Benning has had a better career. Yeah. But yeah? you know what, though? You haven't seen Boys Don't Cry. Hilary Swank deserved that Oscar. No, I know she does. And to be honest, I don't think that American Beauty is... Annette Benning's best performance. Do you think Being Julia is? No, sadly not. That was a weak year, wasn't it? I did. I'm no, actually early two thousand. I'm actually one of good. three people who went to see Being Julia in the theater in Times Square on Forty Second Street on a date with a Mormon. Yeah, was it busy? Just, just to clarify, three people didn't go on a date with a Mormon. I was one well, of three people on there. One of those other people was a Mormon. I wouldn't put it past those Mormons though. <laughs> Being Julia is not particularly good. But um, I was I was one of those diehard Benning supporters who who was in favor of her over <sighs> Natalie Portman in Black Swan. Wait, did, what was she up against Natalie Portman? The kids are all right. Oh yeah, oh, she's very good in yeah, that film. Yeah, she's excellent in that film. Yeah, you're a lot like her in that picture, aren't you? I'm exactly like Annette Benning in that picture, and I'm I'm very much like um, Julianne Moore in that picture. All I can say is marriage is hard, Sean. That's Fair. my line. Thanks for the micromanaging. Um, I feel like we've talked around and around the film. Do you have any expectations about it? I think I'll find it funny somehow. I also think I'll enjoy it. I think you're not prepared for this film, Sean, <laughs> I have to say. You're, you're being very cavalier. The film we're about to see is a neo-noir based on a pulp novel that includes backstabbing, con artistry, etc., and it's been described as noir meets Greek tragedy. Yeah, well, listen, it has Angelica Houston and Annette Bening. I'm obviously going it's to like it. produced by Martin Scorsese and directed by Stephen Frears. Yeah, I'm going to like it. So let's watch the movie, will we? We'll see if we can trust one another after the film is over. Trust no bitch. See ya! The manager at 
your place since your boss called. Really pull the wool over everyone's eyes, huh? What are you talking about? So I've got a job. So what? Stop kidding me. Four years in a town like Los Angeles and a peanut-selling job's the best you can do. You expect me to believe that? Well, it's there. The boss called. You said so yourself. That dump you live in? Those clown pictures on the walls? I like those. You do not. Roy Dillon, cornball clown pictures, commission salesman. It's all a front. You're working some angle, and don't tell me you're not, because I wrote the book. You're one to talk. You still running playback money for the mob? That's me. That's who I am. You were never cut out for the rackets, Roy. How come? You... you aren't tough enough. Not as tough as you, huh? How'd you get that punch in the stomach, Roy? I tripped on a chair. Get off the grift, Roy. Why? You haven't got the stomach for it. We've just been grifted and grifted hard. We certainly have. Do you feel dirty? I feel dirty, but I also feel rich. Just like... <laughs> any other day of the week. Do you feel as slutty as Annette Benning? Oh, she's my spirit animal. <laughs> Is she really? We saw a lot of Annette Benning in this movie. Yeah, and you know, during the entire film, Brian kept turning to me and saying, that I saw you. <laughs> and it's only a compliment. I mean, your pubic hair is exactly like her pubic hair. Did you see? It's in, it's in the distance, but in that one scene where she she scampers in naked, you really did see a full-on, full frontal. It looked like my pubic hair. <laughs> no, it didn't. Okay. It didn't. So, Sean, we have two femme fatales in this film. We have a dupe in the center, poor John Cusack. They're all in the grift. Was this movie the way you expected it to be? At one point, you turned to me and you said, Brian, your country's greatest gift to the world is cinema. Um, yeah, I did say that. I think it's because you may notice that when we go and see a film, it's always an American picture. Most of the time. Let's be honest. You know, all the pictures so far in this... Are there any exceptions? Damage. Damage. Damage was a very European film. But it's, I guess we kind of implicitly the greatest populist entertainment, and it seems to come primarily from one country. Okay, but why, why, what was it about this movie, The Grifters? Because it was probably within the first 10-15 minutes you said that. Yeah, well, the noir is a particularly American genre, and there's all these tropes of the noir, like, you know, the ineffective man, the femme fatale, treachery, and the thing about the neo-noir is that it's harking back to actually very recent history and paying an homage in a very particular way, and... The Grifters is just so American. You know, mm. I know it's by Stephen Frears, but it is such an American film. Stylistically, the setting, the the dialogue, the language, the cadences, the rhythm, the whole thing. So where is this film set? What state are we in? California. We travel back and forth between Los Angeles, as uh, Angelica Houston repeatedly says, and, and what city that seems to be famous for its racetrack? Oh, my new favorite city, La Jolla. La Jolla, California, yes. Um, you and I recently, within the last few months, saw Double Indemnity, and I think there's definitely an indebtedness. Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity has that bleach blonde hair, and so does Angelica Houston in this. How, what did you think of Angelica's look? She looks unlike she's ever looked before in this film, wouldn't you say? Definitely, but at the same time, she has that alluring sexiness. So describe it. Describe how she looks. Well, Angelica Houston is tall, and her tallness is kind of recognised in the picture. She wears kind of like headscarves and long earrings and dark glasses and dresses and high heels. And as you pointed out, Brian, she actually has quite a light, high manner in which she speaks, mm -hmm. which actually is kind of in contrast to the steely persona that she inhabits. I think she looks super trashy in this movie, in a way. It's high-class trash. I mean, she has bleached blonde hair, she's wearing kind of tight, cheap-looking, sexy outfits. Which are probably expensive. Visually, a bit like Chinatown, it's a noir that actually is in painful sunlight an awful lot. Yeah. Like, it's kind of like unpleasant brightness the entire time. There's a lot of that um, in this kind of California setting. Yeah. So, Angelica is a woman named... Lily Dillon. Um, a bit like Phyllis Dietrichson. Because there's a D. Yeah. Yeah. And a L. And a L. Yeah, I guess that's right. So she's she's Lily Dillon. 
she works for a bookmaker. And w what do we gather she does down at the La Jolla uh, racetrack? Well, he's not just a bookmaker. He's a mob boss. Yeah, but specifically, he's a bookie. He's, yeah. a, he's a criminal uh, bookmaker. Yeah? What does Lily do for this guy? Well, he has a brilliant name. Bobo. Bobo Justice. I think Bobo Justice definitely makes up for Palmer Joss the other oh week. Oh, God. <laughs> like, if you name a character Bobo Justice, you're in my good books. What does Lily do for Bobo? Well, now, you can elaborate further on this. So what she does is she places very high bets on... Long shots. Long shots. Yeah. And from what I gather, by placing high bets on long shots, you lower the odds. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure that I totally grasp it, but that's what she's doing in the beginning. She shows up at these racetracks with suitcases full of cash and places major bets, which somehow must be involved in the various bets and schemes that Bobo's got going on. But, it, but Lily's doing something on the side as well. I, somehow she siphons off some of the cash for herself. And so she's kind of double-crossing Bobo. Yeah. Yeah. So and she, this is her full-time job. And she seems to have been conning all her life. Yeah. Did you catch where Bobo is based? He's not based in California. He's based in Florida, isn't he? Is it? Baltimore. Oh, Baltimore. Shout out to listener Jay Mowad. <laughs> yeah. So this is our second Baltimore movie in a row. Yeah. Um, so, sort of. This is a California picture. Yeah. But Baltimore was referenced. Yeah. So. I'm sure Baltimore was mentioned in contact as well. Probably. Johns yeah. Hopkins University. Yeah. So anyway. Um, so she's here in California. She's not usually there. She runs across somebody that she had a former connection with. Her son, Roy, John Cusack. Now, would you describe them as a typical kind of mother-son pairing? I mean, only if most people have, like, you know, estranged parentage and are mildly incestuous towards them when they're around. D did you pick up on that, like, early on when they first run into each other? Uh, yeah, it's you'd have to be a stupid person not to, not to get that. I mean, I didn't look up the relative ages of Angelica Houston and John Cusack, but, like, so he's 25 in the film, that's his character. How old and do you she's, think... Well, she's 39 as a result, because he says that she had it when he was 14, if he's 25, 25 plus yeah. 14, 39. So definitely people seem to comment repeatedly on the fact that he, such a strapping young man, it's hard to believe that he's her son, yeah? Yeah. And they, they've definitely been estranged. She's showed up out of the blue because she's doing this racetrack stuff. But he also... I actually really loved... Do you remember the very beginning of the movie? The kind of cinematic way that Frears introduces our main character. Yeah, we get a three-way split screen. And it's, they're all in different places. All, and not just in different places, but they're all... Doing different cons. Yeah. So, and the third point of the triangle we haven't mentioned is the amazing uh, Myra Langtree, played by Sean's doppelganger, Annette Benning. Did you relate to her? Could, you know, Brian, I don't want to say that I relate to like slutty mildly dim-witted but crafty and and you know grafty women but it's true i do a little bit i mean i can't keep relying on this body for much longer you know but it's more like my cute desperation is kind of what i was bankable what does myra use her body for throughout the movie uh, it seems like most goods and services yeah so we, <laughs> we first see her like trying to pawn off some jewelry and then the jeweler tells her it's not real diamonds can I ask a question yeah this has actually confused me. By sleeping with him, what is she gaining from the situation? Is he going to give her money, do you think? Uh, yeah, presumably. With that, that plotline's not really followed up on, but then later when she needs to pay her rent, the um, landlord comes in and she says, you gotta take the lady or the loot. And clearly, nubile young Annette Benning, you just don't say no. Well, that's fine. Two months we know each other, you're already so bored, you fall asleep before I get here. When you're not here, all I can do is dream about you, Myra. You stink. I hate you. Hmm. The twins seem to be very restless. Maybe we ought to put them to bed, huh? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to smother you. Death, where is thy sting? You smell good, Myra. Like a bitch in a hot house. Oh, darling. <laughs> what a beautiful thing to say. So basically, here we have this situation of Myra and Roy are a couple. But did you pick up on the fact that, like, both of them are sort of keeping their life as con artists kind of hidden from one another? Yeah, like, and they're also fairly new in terms of relationships. Yeah, because um, Roy's a con artist as well in his own sort of 
crap way. Yeah, he's kind of a shitty Connor. It's like, what's um, his classic? Uh, well, he seems to get money, like because he, he stores it in a, in a picture frame. Yeah, of, of, a, two, of a sad clown. Yeah, sad clown with a little door behind it. But his cons seem to be like shitty ones, well, don't they? Well, first of all, the place that we see him conducting a con, this might not mean much to you, but it's a Bennigan's. American listeners will know that Bennigan's, it's like the equivalent of like a Weatherspoons. Oh. It is the shittiest place in the world. Can we can we go to one in Boston? Is there any in Boston? There might be. So he goes into a Bennigan's and he has this like really dumb well no i mean i guess it's effective but it's like a very small con can i hear something i have worked in a bar okay yeah when somebody shows you money first of all it's like oh you've got money nobody else in this bar has money oh i'm gonna serve you and then when you take the money off of them you look at the money so what does he do you describe (laughs) what he does so he holds up he's like hey can i get a miller and he'll hold up a 20 in like his hand very prominent yeah very prominent and then he'll put it down on the on the bar and then they'll pick it up and they'll cash it and they'll give him they'll give him back his change. But what he will have done in that point is he'll have switched it for a ten, and so they'll give him a ten plus his change. Yeah. So he's not he's not a kind of grand scheming con artist. Yeah. He, he has some kind of a job. He's like a matchstick salesman yeah. or something. But Whatever that is. Yeah. But he's like he's making extra cash through nefarious means, but not particularly grand design. Well, you know what the problem is? American money is both too similar in size and too similar in colour. If you had a currency, say, like, the euro, you would be able to tell the denomination of the note both by the colour and by the size so of the So are you note. basically trying to claim that America should be on the euro, Angola? I think it should be a different size of money. I mean, at least it's a bit different now. And, and you know, the Now with Harriet Tubman on it. Can't wait. <laughs> but I mean, the euro is the one true currency. <laughs> All right. Europe. All my European listeners know this. Europhilia. <laughs> let's, let's... Europhilia. <laughs> let's damp that down. So that's where we are at the start of the story. But one clever bartender, who must be as smart as Sean, catches uh, Roy doing this stupid con. And just like I do when I'm conned, I'd punch him in the stomach. Yeah. So much so that over a long term, like, Roy leaves the bar, but he's got internal bleeding. And this just happens to be when his estranged and such Jewish mom, Lily, shows up and is just like, Jewish mom. Jewish yeah. Foster's, uh, <laughs> Stop. She, she was dying. Sean, fine. we need to move forward with All right. They have a bit of a tense reunion, and then she realizes that he's uh, got internal bleeding, and she gets him to go to the hospital. Now, in rethinking about their relationship, like... What do you feel is the bond between Lily and Roy? Like, does she care about him? Does she not care about him? Is is it complicated? No, she absolutely cares about him. Yeah. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, I mean, he obviously left home. He fled home. Yeah. And I think it's been about eight years since they've seen each other or something. Right. He was definitely a teenager when he left, you know, as in he was a living, breathing sexual being at that point. Yeah. So he's got a serious condition. He's She gets him off. She, in fact, yeah, invokes, she gets him off. <laughs> she gets him off to the hospital. She invokes the name of Bobo yeah. in order to get speedy service. And she says to the doctor, you better save his life or I'm going to kill you. Yeah. yeah. I'll have you killed. I'll have you killed. So they, they get into the hospital. And I think it's it's at the hospital or near the hospital that... Lily and Myra first run into each other. Myra shows up at the hospital, they pass Lily, and they do not like the look of one another. I kind of wish there were more scenes between Annette and Angelica in the film. Well, you know, Myra was much more sympathetic towards Lily than the other way around. You think so? Oh, yeah, because Roy initially refuses to accept that Lily was the one who saved his life. Myra quite frankly says, well, you know, it was your mother who did this, you know? I get the impression that Myra is much more willing to, you know, be polite and friendly toward Lily. And Lily just is not having that from the get-go. And as a result, Myra has to retaliate. And also, a lot is made of how similar they are. Like, characters are often confusing them one for the next. They certainly dress similarly, right? So there's definitely this, like, incestuous vibe going on that, in a way, Roy has picked this girlfriend that people keep confusing with his mother. So there's there's something there's something Freudian Wait, underneath of question. that. Wait, Yeah. What year is this? 1990. No, in the film. I presume it's contemporary times. But what tells you it is? Because there's nothing contemporaneous about it, really. Think about it. I guess. I didn't pick up on the fact that it was meant to be another time period in a particular way. I mean, maybe in the sense that some of the stylings were, like, vintage or classic of a certain era, but it seemed like a sort of a 
a mix, right? Like there, there were certain elements that almost felt like 1940s and then they're driving around these kind of shitty Oldsmobiles. I mean, I think it's just since the world that they move in is quite cheap, isn't it? That That's fair, yeah. Yeah. So the fact that Lily has gone to the hospital with Roy is actually very significant because it means she's not been able to do her job at the racetrack for Bobo and the race has gone on without Lily placing a bet and therefore Bobo wants revenge. That was a pretty gruesome scene, wasn't it? How much did the pals cut you in for on that nag? Are you, they giving you the same kind of screwing you gave me. I was down on that horse, Bobo. Maybe not as much as I should have been. There was a lot of action Good on the horse. You want to stick to that story or you want to keep your teeth? I want to keep my teeth. All right. I'll ask you another. You think I got no contacts out here? That nag paid off at almost the opening price. There wasn't hardly a flutter on the tote board from the time the first odds were posted. There ain't enough action to tickle the tote board and you claim a 10 grand win. You send me $10,000 like I'm a fucking mark you can rip off. No, Bobo, I didn't... You talk to me straight up? My son. Your what? My son was in the hospital. What the fuck are you doing with his son? He left home a long time ago. He was in the hospital up in Los Angeles. He was real sick. Motherhood. Never fucked up before, Bobo. You got any kind of long coat in the car, something you could wear home over your dress? No. I'll loan you a raincoat. Can I just point out to the listeners, so in this particular scene in which he does burn her hand with a cigar and, and he in, he evokes a, a classic con in which you swindle money out of insurance companies by getting beaten with oranges in a towel which can either not hurt you and bruise you or hurt you really badly and fuck you up. There's one point where he says, do you have a long coat to wear home? And we see her leaving a long coat. He does something to her in the dress, I don't know, but like... The dress is gone. So there's a whole manner of other sinister things. That yeah. So I mean, about. that's the that's the implication of it. Because actually, despite being a fierce, powerful woman, she is quaking in her boots when Bobo arrives. Yeah. Right? I say Bobo is an amazing villain. Yeah. Because he is actually very polite. He doesn't. He doesn't like raise his voice yeah. he doesn't use menace he's just very matter of fact about the cruel punishments he's going to put you and through he, and he sort of announces to her we're going to get in my car we're going to drive to my hotel and he basically implies I'm going to beat you and torture you for what you've done and she just willingly drives with him it's almost more horrific for how mild mannered it seems yeah but that, that cigar burn is very important for yeah, later on. it is. So while all this is going on between Bobo and Lily, Myra and Roy take a side trip for fun down to La Jolla uh, and stay in a hotel room and have some sexy times and all this kind of stuff. But Myra has a plan. And this is the part of the movie that I remember the best, which is this sort of extended flashback where we kind of learn that Myra is actually a much more skilled con artist than than Roy ever was, because she has this kind of long con that involves J.T. Walsh. Do you want to describe, like, what she does in this flashback scene? So she finds these guys who actually have a lot of money. Yeah. And uh, are kind of bozos. And what she does is she dupes them into this fake investment in something. But, but, but what it involves... I mean, it's not just, like, one person. It's a whole ring of people. So they... They rent out a fake office. They employ actors to like pretend to be. They basically create a whole fake company. Yeah. And get people to invest in this company. Yeah, invest in cash. And kind of obviously the guys that they target are sort of Yahoo cowboys who with, with a lot of money. Yeah, who like the fact that she's a sexy woman. And then the way that they um, end up not discovering the fakeness of the front is that they stage an actual FBI raid with guns blazing and, like, fake blood packets where she and her co-conspirators pretend to be dead and the guy runs out and they stick with the cash. Yeah. So, and obviously what happens is that the guys who run out, they just never want to go back there or deal with it again. So they don't go back for the cash and they get to keep it. And they do this con over and over again. So it's quite an elaborate thing. It's not, you know, it's, it's much bigger than slipping someone a $10 bill when you 
you know, they're tricking them that it's a 20. And she wants to lure Roy into doing this again. But Roy is not having any of this. So he does not want to get into a plan with Myra. Um, and then it all kind of goes south, right? Once um, Myra turns on Lily, she rats Lily out to Bobo. Lily goes on the run and is in a motel. And basically, what does Myra come to the motel to do? It's interesting, when she shows up at the front desk, the desk clerk thinks that she is Lily. I Yeah, it's, this, this is when it gets very kind of like body swapping, you know, body swapping, personality shifting. Yeah. You know, mother lover virgin whore kind of thing. <laughs> She's my mother. She's my sister. Yeah. She's my mother. Which is She's like my sister. Another uh, noir definitely invokes, you know what I mean? That whole mother, sister, daughter thing yeah. is like really upfront. Yeah. So Myra goes in to kill Lily, but I think Lily is waiting for Bobo to come and kill her. So she's sleeping with a gun under her pillow. So when Myra comes in to choke Lily to death, Lily just happens to have a pistol under her pillow, sticks it in Myra's mouth and blows her brains out. Yeah, and we don't quite know exactly what's happened because we then cut to um, John Cusack, Roy, who's been asked to come and identify a body. And that body is wearing Lily's clothes and he identifies it and he says, this is my mother. Yeah, the face is fucked up. Yeah, he's like, this is my mother. But significantly, he looks at her hand and her hand does not have the cigar burn mark. So we then learn that Lily has very cleverly switched the bodies and taken Myra's clothes. So the whole kind so of... So gory, isn't well, it? Well, also, like, the... The incestuous threads of it, it could kind of reach their height where the mother has taken the girlfriend's clothes, she disguised herself as the girlfriend, she's killed off the mother identity. Yeah, and so like the confusion of of like the misplaced personalities is gone, she just becomes Myra. Yeah, and then we get this kind of insane final scene. She, she goes, goes back to house. Roy's flat, why does she need to go back to Because his... she knows that somewhere in his flat, in those dodgy pictures she pointed out earlier, that he must be stashing a load of cash. So she wants Roy's cash so that she can run off because otherwise she thinks she's never going to survive. She needs that cash. Roy doesn't want to give her the cash. And they have this quite extended and very convoluted and complicated final dialogue. What did you think of John Cusack and Angelica Houston in that final scene? Well, Angelica, is, you know, who desperately wants the money, says to him, you know, what, what would you do if I told you I wasn't my mother? You'd like that, wouldn't you? All the evidence, as far as we can tell, is that she is indeed his mother. And I choose to believe that she is his mother as so well. So basically what she's doing is selling her own body to her son as a form of then getting him to give her the cash that she can use to run off with. It is a fucked up kind of final dynamic yeah, between you, son and mother. You have forgotten all of this film, which was great. But Brian just did not remember what was going to happen. So at one point, they're having a drink and the seduction is taking place. And just as his guard seems to be off, she takes up the case that she planned to steal the money in and she slams it against him. By doing so, she breaks the glass he's holding into his neck. And he pumps blood everywhere. And he dies. And he dies. So And he dies. And he actually dies. So in the space of like less than a minute, she's gone from trying to seduce her, her own son for money to then inadvertently killing him and running off with his cash yeah. so that she can survive. You know, and, and the very last scene, we see a parked car, you know, we, we linger at a parked car for a moment. And as her car drives off into the empty roads of... Of uh, Los Angeles. Los Angeles, yeah. We see one car following her behind, and I'm certain that it's Bobo or one of his henchmen to kill her. You know, it's interesting. Throughout the film, they keep saying, um, you've got to have an angle. Somebody's like, There's, somebody's got to have an angle on somebody. And I just put that together with Los Angeles, because mm. obviously Los Angeles really means the city of angels. Yeah. But these people are not angels, are they? They're anything yeah, but ang they're angels. But yeah, and they're angular, and they've all got angles on one another. Like, at no point do I think any of these partnerships are really trustworthy. And that's why, why Roy doesn't want to get in a partnership with his mom, because he knows he can't really trust her. He doesn't want to get in a partnership with Myra, sexy as she is, and experienced as con artist as she is. Um, because she's been boning other guys for cash yeah. and services. Her entire life. Everybody's out to get everybody. Did you think there was any heart at the heart of this film? When Lily comes to save Roy the first place and take, her, take him to the hospital, 
is there a true affection of mother and son there? Or well, you know, I would say that every character has an affection toward each other. I mean, obviously not Myra and Lily, but the female relationships towards Roy are definitely sincere, or at least they start off that way. It's just that they are corrupted by their own, you know, their need for, to survive. Not just the need to survive. These people are manipulators. They're deviants. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're crooks. Like they are people with hearts who are corrupted by everything that's immoral. We haven't said much about John Cusack. Did you think he was an effective man in the middle of all this? You know, I thought John, John Cusack was fine, but this is a film for the women, though. Yeah. he. I mean, we talk about Double Indemnity. He is a bit like that Fred McMurray kind of role. Yeah, in the same way, Fred McMurray is great in Double Indemnity, but all you need is a fairly broad-foreheaded, you know, numbskull. And it could be someone else, but Fred McMurray obviously is great for it, and um, John Cusack in this is also very good. Right, because it's this kind of thing where the women are constantly telling him they love him, and he's sexy, and isn't he cool, and he kind of believes the hype, but it, it brings his guard down, and actually, in the end, he's just put through the grinder, or the grifter, shall we say. So, taking the two women, did this give you new appreciation uh, Angelica Houston actually has, seems to have a track record of playing people with questionable morality. I've never seen Pritzi's Honor, but it's about the mob, isn't it? I think for me, rewatching this with Angelica, I, it was the softer notes that I appreciated more. Like I remembered her being steely and cold. It was kind of the vulnerability, both that she shows with Bobo in that horrible scene where she just seems timid and quaking, um, and also like the vulnerability that she shows with her son as well. And it's that play back and forth that I think really makes this a very interesting character and a really effective performance from her. Well, Angelica Houston's funny because even though she plays these characters of questionable morality, she is a very likable actress, you know? Yeah. And, like, you kind of are not rooting for her, but you believe in her redemption that is going to come. And Annette Benning is kind of funny because, I mean, I'm trying to think of some chronological Annette Benning performances. We'll start with Evelyn Ames in Postcards from the Edge. We have this picture. Is there uh, presumably, that was around the same time. Yeah, exactly the same and, time. And, you know, she did actually... Did you know that there were two Dangerous Liaisons movies that came out at the same time? Oh. So there's the famous one. like Dante's Peak and well, Volcano. exactly. So there's the famous one that was with Glenn Close and John Malkovich and got lots of Oscar nominations. But there was a literally another adaptation of the novel called Valmont. Yeah, yeah. Where, where... Who directed it? Uh, it might have been Milos Forman, actually. It might have been. And it wasn't as popular. So Annette plays the Glenn Close role and Colin Firth plays the John Malkovich part. So she, again, had... It, I, I think, Wait, she plays the Glenn Close role? Yes. Not the Michelle Pfeiffer one? No, absolutely. So the thing is... I think what you're getting at is that in her early career, Annette Benning was typecast as a slut who uses sex for money, and she's definitely a sex pot because you have that, you have Postcards from the Edge, you have this, and, and Bugsy, where she's a gangster's mall. And then somewhere along the way, maybe when she... It's like around yeah, well, the time of like, do you remember the American president with Michael Douglas? Is she in that? Yeah, she's the love interest. Oh, God. God, Sean. You know, but the thing is, even in American Beauty, she's still shooting a gun and getting... Fucked by the what, what? What did she say? Fuck me, your Majesty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know I mean, Peter Gallagher. Still, yeah, there's still elements of that. Of Sexuality, that but she sort of moves into yeah. more being like every woman, kind of suburban type A, sort of grand dame. Type A, yes. But she's not type A in these early roles. She's no like way. she's like sexy streetwalker. It's so funny because I'm type A, but I'm also sexy streetwalker. Oh, oh Annette. What, am I, so am I Warren Beatty in this relationship? No, you're type A as well, darling. <laughs> so, the Grifters, an overall, an overall vote on this? It's funny, actually, Brian. You know, if you want my real verdict on it, I really enjoyed it, but it's just it was never dark enough or mean enough. Never dark good. and mean no, enough? it wasn't. It what wasn't. are you talking about? I just would have liked a greater sense of menace. I really would have. Bobo wasn't menacing yeah, no, enough Bobo, for you? No, okay, Bobo was great. I just think that, Shooting like, off Annette Benning's face, taking her clothes, and then trying to seduce your own son isn't dark enough for you? What, what do you want? I want Angelica Houston to take off her face and reveal a witch underneath. <laughs> you want an alien to burst out of her chest. Is that, is that all that will appease you, Sean? Is that not too much to ask? She is an alien. She's an alien from a, the planet of amorality. Yeah. Well... Okay, I you know, I have to say, I think this is a supremely well-made genre picture. Whether it has anything truly profound to say about the human condition, 
God, I certainly hope not. Yeah, I can tell you what it says about the human condition. We're all out for ourselves. We'll all fuck over and kill anybody for money. And that ultimately, that's what life is about, babe. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I think that wraps up this very long con, which we have now gotten all the way through without incestuously shooting off one another's face. Do we have any self-promotion to make, babe? Uh, We do have slight self-promotion. Ladies and gentlemen, if you do live in London, there is still time for you to see my play, We Wait in Joyful Hope, which has no amorality at all. It is about idealism, feminism, activism, and nuns. And when you're done with that wholesome goodness, you can come to my night at the Eagle London called Nitrate Cinema, in which we're showing some sexy, classy, crassy, queer cinema. We're going to be showing some shorts by the great pornographer Peter Jerome, and we're also going to be showing ahead of its uh, national release, Trouser Bar, uh, directed by Kirsten Bjorn, which is an homage to the great porn of the era. And it has a great soundtrack and lots of porn stars in it. And it's great. Fun for the family. That is on Wednesday, June 1st at the Eagle London in Vauxhall. And all subsequent Wednesdays, there will be new screenings. All subsequent Wednesdays. We're in Gemini and I am good to go. (laughs) And for Brian's play, it's six nights a week in Battersea. Check out www.theatre503.com. It runs until the 11th of June. The Virgin... And the whore. That's me and Sean. Isn't it great that we have so much things to peddle to our listeners? (laughs) All right. It really makes me feel like I'm doing something in my life. Please follow Broad Appeal. Our website is www.broadappealpod.com. Our Twitter handle is at broadappealpod. You can also reach Sean at Sean McGovern X. You can reach Brian at B.A. Mullen Speaks. We haven't said what our next film is going to be. Can I quote T.S. Eliot? Yes, please. I've heard mermaids singing each to each. Mermaids. Share. Winona Ryder. Christina Ricci. That's it. That's right. You've been waiting for it. Mermaids is our next episode. Listen, watch. We'll see you in two weeks' time. We've been Broad Appeal. You've been amazing. Good night. (laughs)